Please follow along in your own Bible, electronic device, or on the screen overhead as I read the story of the prodigal son from God's holy word found in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Luke chapter 15, 11 through 32. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard the music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what was going on? Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, 
but now he has found. God bless the reading of his word. One of the things that I experienced while I was at Moody Bible Institute is what they called the candlelight of carols at Christmas time. And it was a vague production with uh, all of the music people in the uh, at Moody participating. And they would join the men's chorus, the women's chorus, and the uh, mixed chorus, and all the orchestras and so forth. And we would put on a production. And what, part of that was we would sing portions of Handel's Messiah. Uh, that's a stretch for people who are somewhat musically challenged. And so it was a stretch for me. Uh, especially when you get to the Hallelujah Chorus. And, uh, but it was, a, it was a great thing. It was a fun thing. And as a result of that, one of the traditions that we had as a family is that we would listen at Christmas time to the Hallelujah Chorus. We've got the CDs. For those of you younger who don't know what a CD is, it's a little disc that you know, they imprinted some music on. Uh, anyway... Uh, we have that, and we, we play it on a fairly regular basis through the holiday season. The well-known piece from it is, of course, the Hallelujah Chorus, but one of the ones that's one of my favorites is the one that's based on the verse that we, we have uh, been looking at during our time together with the uh, uh, Advent season. Uh, For unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And uh, it's interesting that the words for the Messiah were written not by Handel, but by a fellow by the name of Charles Jennings. And he gave them to Handel, and Handel then put them to music. And it took him just 24 days to produce the music of the Messiah. Uh, pretty amazing, and it was first performed in 1742. Uh, it's been a you know standard piece of music from that point on, and I appreciate it especially as we've been looking at these uh, verses here in Advent, uh, which speak of the names of the the Messiah, the one who is the Wonderful Counselor, uh, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and this morning we're looking at that one statement, one title of Jesus, which is Everlasting Father. And I would think that's perhaps the most challenging of all of the uh, statements or names that are given to the Messiah here in this text. Uh, it's most challenging because I think uh, we have to kind of pu push aside a little bit of the debris to fully understand what that means. Uh, and so this morning, I want to begin by saying, I want to share with you what it does not mean uh, to clear the deck, and then we can look more specifically at what it means. What it does not mean is a confusion of the Trinitarian understanding of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Our understanding of God is not confused by the fact that the Messiah, Jesus, is called everlasting father. We just have to understand that father is used a little bit differently. Messiah, the Messiah here is not called father in a way which confuses him with what was preeminently called the father, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the, in the Trinitarian uh, sense. Uh, we know that because if you look at the text itself, it says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So the primary focus is upon a son. But then it says that son is going to be named Everlasting Father. And so you have to sort that out a little bit and understand what's being said. Our Lord's proper name, so far as the Godhead is concerned, is not the Father, but the Son. We need to be aware of, that, uh, of confusion that comes from that because there are some skeptics who use this text to claim that there is no such thing as the Trinity and that the Son and the Father are essentially the same. But the Son is not the Father. Neither is the Father the Son. And though they are one God, essentially and eternally, being evermore one and indivisible, yet there is still a distinction of the persons that needs to be observed and believed. So our text has no bearing upon the position or the titles of the three persons with regard to each other. It's not talking about the relationship within the Godhead and the Trinity and the deity, but it is talking to us about the relation of Jesus Christ to us. He is the everlasting Father for us, and we'll unpack that a bit more in a moment. The other thing I want to say this morning is that we, what it is not when we hear these phrase eternal father is that we are to understand this in terms of an analogy with our human father. We should not understand that the nature of father that's used here based upon our experience from our human fathers. We all have had dads of various stripes. Some of us have had great dads. Some of us have had dads that uh, we uh, wish we would not have had, perhaps. But our human fathers are not to be used as an analogy for our heavenly father or for the eternal father that we're talking about here this morning. Some of us have had never satisfied dads. Some of us have had time bomb dads that would explode. Some of us have had emotionally distant dads, absent fathers. It's possible that we all suffer from some sort of father wound. And to think of our human fathers and then to project that and say that's what God is like is totally to miss the, what, what, what this text is trying to say. Theodore Roosevelt adored his father. He thought his father could do no wrong. But it came up to the time of the Civil War... And his father decided not to enlist in, although he wanted to, he decided not to enlist in the uh, Union Army because his wife was a Southerner and she was not at all wanting him to be uh, a part of the Union Army. And so he decided not to do it. That left a mark on Theodore Roosevelt. And some say that as a result of that, he became kind of a warmonger. And you know the story of how he went up San Juan Hill and the all of that kind of stuff. But he had a, a, a wound which was created by his father. And every one of us perhaps have those kinds of wounds. And even if we don't, if, even if we love our father and think he was perfect, there's something that happens when uh, our father dies at that point. He, he leaves us. 
my cousin, Bill Munkemeyer, has a daughter, Samantha. She's on my Facebook, and Bill died several years ago. But over and over and over again, Samantha posts pictures and quotes and so forth about how much she misses her dad. And no matter how great our dads are, they're not eternal. They're not eternal. And so what we need to understand is that we begin to understand the father nature of the Messiah and let that inform us from the text and from the scriptures itself rather than trying to draw from our human fathers an analogy of who the Bible is talking about when it talks about an eternal father. So those are two kind of caveats of what it is not. So then what is this text talking about when it says eternal father? Let me suggest it's three things. One, first of all, it's a word of revelation of the father heart of God as represented in the person of Jesus Christ. One author says it's a descriptive analogy pointing to the character of Christ. He is fatherly. He is fatherlike in his treatment of us. So much so that even the concept of fatherlike in terms of his care for us is not adequate so that as we noticed in 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Paul used the idea of a mother. So it's this, this sense of who he is in terms of his uh, person in his relationship with us. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read uh, a description of him as, it, as it's written for us in the first chapter of Hebrew. Let me read it for you. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through, five, uh, through 3. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and in many times and in various ways. But in his last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through him made the universe. The son is the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his power. After he had provided purification for sin, he sat down to majesty in heavens and so became so much superior to the angels as his name is inherited, is superior to theirs. He is the exact representation of the father. In that sense, there's no difference between father and son, but he is revealing the nature of God the father to us in his own personality in terms of a revelation. Secondly, it's a word of adoption. He is the source of our sonship. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 and following, it talks about the fact that in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He said, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises and I will put my trust in you. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Throughout the scriptures, it's become quite clear that Jesus is our 
quote, elder brother. That's significant. Because by virtue of his suffering, he becomes a representative as the head of all humankind. And Francis Liddell, in his book, Slaves, Citizens, and Sons, says this. According to the old Jewish custom, the oldest brother was the father of the family in the absence of the father. The firstborn took precedence over all and took upon himself the father's position. So the Lord Jesus, the firstborn among many brothers, exercises toward us a father's role. He's practicing adoption. It's the practice of adoption, relieving the debt and bestowing the rights and privileges of the son of the inheritance. It was quite clear that the, the, the eldest son took the role of the father when the father had passed away, and he became the head of the family as a father. Thirdly, as you look at the text, eternal father is a word of affection. In the psalm, we read in Psalm 103, these words, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like the grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. Wind blows and it's over and it's gone. And his place remembers it no more. But then look at these words. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord loves is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Our human fathers are temporary. But the psalmist makes it abundantly clear that Jesus, as our elder brother who takes the place of father, his compassions are eternity, eternal, from everlasting to everlasting. The reason I had Vicki read Luke 15 this morning is because there's not a better picture and a better illustration of eternal father than that story that Jesus told. The wonder of how he illustrates his love for us by telling the story of a rebel son who walks away angry with his father, upset with what's going on at home, and goes off to live his life. And then begins to realize the mistake that he made and he comes back. And as he comes back, he's received by the Father. The Father who is the eternal Father, the Messiah, Jesus himself. Who receives us back for himself. A great picture that was painted. And it's a beautiful picture of how the prodigal is received back and the hands of the father embracing his son. Eternal father. Jesus 
expresses to us the character of a loving father. Not like our human fathers, but something that is completely different. Something that is so far above. And he invites us to come back and to experience his love. So that's basically an explanation of the first part of what we're looking at this morning, eternal father. We've looked at the father part. Now let's back up and take a little look at the idea of eternal father or everlasting father. In Psalm 102, verses 25 and following, uh, we read these words. In the beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are, and, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will be changed. Uh, you you will change them, and they will be discarded. But you, but you, Father, remain the same, and your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in your presence. Their descendants will be established before you. More than any other author, the prophet Isaiah speaks often of the eternity of God. He speaks of God as the one who is the high, who is high and lifted up and who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. And here in this text that we're looking at this morning, he uses this type of language for the Messiah. The Messiah is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is, who was, and is to come, the Almighty, as it says in Revelation 1, verse 8. Isaiah here is speaking of a child who is going to be born some hundred years after he prophesied. Yet he makes this point very clear, that the child that he is speaking of is the author of eternity. He is the father of time. He is not bound by time. He created it. And so he is the eternal one. There's some significant connections, I think, with this concept of eternity that are illustrated for us from the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews, the author speaks about an event that took place during the life of Abraham. Abraham uh, was uh, met by some kings, and he recognized in Melchizedek, this king, uh, something uh, superior to himself. And so he makes an offering, a sacrifice, and the author of Hebrews picks up on that and says this. Let me read the text for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 and following. He says, if perfection... Uh, well, let me, let me back up one, one more verse. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth uh, or tithe, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in his body of his ancestor. The, the, the story essentially is this. Uh, Hebrews is trying to show that the Levitical priesthood was not superior, but that Abraham, even before the Levitical priesthood came into being, offered a sacrifice to this king, Melchizedek, and by in doing so, he was actually paying tithes ahead of time. Then we'll read on. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? 
one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. So he's comparing the order of Melchizedek to the Aaronic priesthood. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at that altar. For it is clear that the Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said in, is even more clear in another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who had become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, according to Levitical law, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. And here's where we get the connection. An indestructible life. For he declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation has been set aside because it was weak and useless and the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced which we draw near, by which we draw near to God. It was not without an oath. Others came, became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath when he said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. The point that the book of Hebrews is making is that, well, the Old Testament gives no record of either the beginning or the end of Melchizedek, and it builds this point that because of that, there was an eternity that was involved in the coming of Melchizedek. The whole point being this. The grand theme of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ, who is superior to the prophets, the angels, Moses, Aaron, and the priesthood of Levi, became, a, became the minister of a better covenant, a better sanctuary, and a better sacrifice. The historical account in Genesis chapter 14, which this depicts Melchizedek as the royal priest reigning in the city of Salem, better known as Jerusalem. Of interest to the Bible scholars is the fact that the book of Genesis is filled with genealogies, but Melchizedek, in spite of his importance, has no record. He simply appears for a moment and then vanishes from sight. He is described in Genesis as being, quote, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. This is what makes him an excellent type of our ever-living, eternal Savior and High Priest. In other words, our eternal Heavenly Father, who offers for us an eternal sacrifice. The Old Testament had to repeat sacrifices over and over again. But the eternal Father is a permanent Father for all of eternity, a permanent sacrifice. Therefore, he can be the originator of eternal life. Very simple verse, God loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is so surely and so essentially eternal that he is here pictured as the source and the father of eternity. Jesus is not the child of eternity, but the father of eternity. Eternity did not begin with him, but he brought forth eternity. And so the, whole, the, the, prophecy, uh, the book of Hebrews says, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. 
The eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are his everlasting arms. The beautiful picture that we find in Luke 15 of the prodigal son coming back to the father. That's not a one-off. That is offered for all of eternity. And the love of our Father will never end. Isn't it any wonder we talk about Christmas being a time of singing for joy? What a joyful thing to know that our Heavenly Father is an eternal Father. and That Jesus is that Son, our elder brother, who takes all that the Father has to give us and offers it to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you remind us again that you are eternal Father, everlasting Father. Your love will never end. Your love has no beginning and it has no end. Your relationship with us as a loving father has no beginning and no end. And we give you thanks and celebrate that this morning in Christ's name. Amen.